This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, the power of exercise to lower your diabetes risk. And a related issue, which is common in people with diabetes, but with other causes of vascular disease, is called peripheral artery disease and causes enormous disability. And it's probably more serious in women, and it's been relatively under-researched and under-treated, leading to amputations. More on that later. But first, Norman, let's talk about this week's health news. Firstly, on medicine shortages, which we've been hearing about in the news pretty frequently since the beginning of the pandemic. Anecdotally, there's supply problems with a certain class of drugs that we'll talk about in the moment, drugs used for diabetes, but also for weight loss. But where do we stand in general on medicine shortages at the moment? Well, we put in a request to the TGA about drug shortages, but they only came back to us with responses in relation to these weight loss diabetes drugs, the so-called GLP-1 receptor agonists such as liraglutide and semaglutide. Anyway, we'll come back to those later. But they do have a website on medicine shortages, which anybody can go to and have a look. The one for doctors is a bit more informative than the one for consumers. And it turns, you get like the inside track on what's well, really... Well, kind of do. So there's a wide variety of drugs either have limited availability or are unavailable. And some of them are unavailable, they predict, for a month, two months, or maybe even to the end of the year. And they range, without going into lists, they range, because you don't want to run on these, but range from anti, some antibiotics, some anti-cancer drugs... Uh, steroids, antidepressants. So it's a, it's a wide range of drugs, some anti some antihypertensives, some drugs for high blood pressure. So it's a wide... Wa- yeah, there is always a bit of a risk of us talking about this on a national show like the Health Report because we don't want to fuel um, people sort of, yeah, as you say, going out and running on them if they're worried that they're going to be in shortage. But what are some of the causes for these shortages? Well, the causes are complex and not entirely transparent. The United States has it much worse than we do, particularly in the area of cancer drugs. So, and and it's so. Let me let me just talk about the things that are obvious and open. One is a shortage of raw materials from China and India. So, in other words, the raw materials you need to make these drugs. Some of these drugs require a specialised manufacturing stream that's not readily um, rampable. In other words, the, the scale up from these, some of these manufacturing stream, streams when the demand goes up, it's not easy to recreate them. Then there are uh, labour shortages, which are general, general throughout a lot of different in, 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 in industries. But one of the causes, and we've talked a little bit about this before on the health report, but not for a while, is that some generic medications, the profit margins in some countries are higher uh, than others, and particularly in Europe compared to the United States. So manufacturers, um, they would deny it, but the belief amongst regulators is that supplies are going to the countries with the highest margins, particularly on generics. Oh. Now, our margins are probably a bit higher than the United States, which is probably a reason why, maybe a reason why our supply of drugs isn't quite as critical as the United States, but it's there. Now, the good news is that 
for many of these drugs, pharmacists do have an alternative. So there may be a specific dosage, like five milligrams of cortisone, for example. I'm, I'm picking that out of thin air. I'm not sure that there is a shortage of five milligrams of cortisone. But let's say there is. Well, there's a way of pharmacists perhaps uh, compounding or providing an alternate source or changing the dosage a little bit to allow people to get their drug. Um, also, the TGA has allowed unapproved medications to be substituted. So these are not weird and wonderful medications, but these are the, the, just the plucking out of air and may or may not work. These are legitimate medications that the manufacturer, though, may not have applied for marketing approval in Australia. So they've allowed the importation of these drugs. So there are ways around some of these drugs, but not necessarily all of them. So it's, it's not a cause for um, complacency. What sort of timeline are we looking at before we're seeing the supply and the demand being more in balance again? It varies according to drug, I mean, from what you see on the, on the websites. And when you look at the reporting from the United States, there's no clear end to this at the moment. Mm. Mm. Let's talk about the specific classes you promised. Yeah, so these are these drugs that are on everybody's lips and some stomachs as they stab themselves with drugs like Ozempic. So they're, they're called GLP-1 receptor agonists, which means they simulate a hormone that produces insulin after a meal, but they also have side effects in terms of uh, feeling full, your appetite going down and resulting in weight loss. They've got a generic names such as liraglutide and semaglutide. And some of these have been in short supply. And uh, there's been an interesting study done, which may or may not have predicted the problem, but also looks at whether or not people are searching and interested in these drugs appropriately. In other words, have they got obesity and have they got complications from their, their obesity? So this is a study which looked at Google searches, comparing where the Google searches came from for these drugs and the prevalence of obesity in these areas. But the person who can tell us much more about how the research was done and the results is Associate Professor Alireza Ahmadvan, who is from Griffith University. Welcome to The Health Report. Good afternoon, Norman and Tegan. Thank you for having me. So how did you do this study? It was a project that I suggested to the public health group for uh, our uh, Masters of Public Health students. And one of so the this students, is in the medical school at Griffith? Yes, medical school at Griffith on the Gold Coast. I suggested the topic because uh, our Masters of Public Health students, they need to do a research project as part of their uh, learning. And one of the students whom I would like to acknowledge, Dr. Abdullah Aswiyan, he picked up this topic. He put a lot of efforts into this and I supervised him throughout the project. So they were searching for what in particular on Google? The idea that I uh, suggested was uh, checking the possible association between the prevalence of obesity and overweight and people's search on Google for uh, semaglutide specifically. Because I, I work in the community and I noticed early on how much interest people are uh, having and telling us about uh, this this medication. They were being referred to us by pharmacists, by friends, by uh, nurses, whoever, uh, to go and talk to a GP and ask about this medication. So, And it, it just raised the question as to whether this 
increasing interest has any association with the actual problem, which is prevalence of overweight and obesity. So in your general practice, when they were asking for it, did you notice that it wasn't, they weren't all obese? I was getting interest from a variety of body mass index ranges. So it wasn't just people who feel or who have been diagnosed as obese or overweight even. It was from people for whom we think, okay, maybe medication is not completely necessary, but they were asking for it. So when you looked at the pattern of Google searches and compared yes. to what it was known from mm -hmm. data on, on prevalence of obesity and overweight yes. in, in different states and territories, what did you find? Yes. We were actually very surprised because we looked at three years' worth of data from Google. Uh, the medication got approved in August 2019, but... We actually looked at data from 2020 up until the end of 2022. So early on, 2020, we didn't see a, a lot of search on Google about this medication, apart from very, very minor jumps here and there. But from late 2021 onwards, it actually escalated extremely quickly, reaching, um, let's say, maximum search, which is identified as 100, which is the uh, highest number on Google Trends in mid, um, around mid 2022, around May-ish. And then is it has started going down when the shortages started showing itself. So that was the search we found. And also Queensland ranked first uh, in searching for this medication specifically, specifically over the past three years. And yet Queensland wasn't the highest state or territory in terms of obesity and... Uh, no, it was interesting that in terms of overweight and obesity combined together, Queensland technically, according to the A, to data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, obviously this data goes back to 2017, 18. They are yet to update the National Health Survey, hopefully in the coming months or next year. Queensland ranks uh, six when it comes to overweight and obesity. And also, obesity only, Queensland ranks uh, third. But uh, in terms of search for this medication, Queensland continuously, both in 2021 and 2022, it ranked first. So there was some correlation, but not a lot. What yes. Do you, what do you take away from that? Well... Uh, I think we need to be mindful of the fact that this is uh, what we call an ecological study. So it looks at associations, possible associations. And you also don't so, know the individuals who are searching either. Yes, we don't know whether an individual with obesity or overweight genuinely goes on Google to search. So we cannot interpret this data or in, we cannot interpret this possible association at the individual level. This is population-level data. So that's one limitation that I need to highlight. What we need to consider is that we are only looking at three years' worth of data, and the prevalence, prevalence rates are coming from 2017-18. We should somehow assume uh, for... A reliable interpretation. We should assume that, okay, perhaps the prevalence rates have not changed significantly over the past four or five years uh, in order for us to be able to interpret the association. But, but if you assume that, which is not an unreasonable assumption. Uh, that, no, no, uh, I don't think uh, it's unreasonable. So essentially what we're finding, which is unsurprising really, uh -huh. which, is, which is true of most 
medical conditions and demand for medicine is that there's not a good correlation with need from demand. Yes, absolutely. Well, and we need to consider also some uh, some other uh, aspects as well. There is a difference between searching on Google and actually going to talk to your GP or doctor to get this script because there should be there could be a gap between the two phenomena. However, if we consider searching on Google as a as a possible proxy for demand, then it becomes more meaningful. Uh, let me add something. This is not part of this research, but when I was when I was um, doing some follow up assessments, I noticed that, for example, during the shortages, we had to switch to a different medication from GLP-1 agonists called um, dulaglutide uh, or uh, Trulicity. But when you check Google Trends, the average search volume for semaglutide is seven times that of dulaglutide, which means that the interest for Ozempic is seven times on average as strong as the one. And of course, the dulaglutide was not getting the media publicity. No, that semaglutide no. was getting. So, in other words, yes. this could be driven by media yes. and media coverage, perhaps even yes. public relations from the drug companies. You just don't yes. know. Anyway, when you do your next one, we'll be fascinated to find out. But yet again, a disconnect in the system between demand and need. Look, thank you very yes. much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's uh, Professor Associate Professor Alareza Ahmadband from uh, Griffith University in Queensland. I'm just thinking we should just tell the audience that um, coming back to the drugs, it's, we're interested in, know, in knowing more about your experiences, not yours, Tegan, but the audiences, with the, these weight loss or diabetes drugs. Have you had trouble getting your prescriptions filled? Have you found success with them or discovered some pitfalls? Let us know by emailing us at healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll keep following this one over the coming weeks. If I asked you how much exercise you should be getting, you, a devoted health report listener, could probably rattle off the Australian government recommendations fairly easily. For adults, it's about 30 minutes of moderate physical activity five times a week or a mix of moderate and physical vigorous activity plus muscle strengthening activities at least twice a week. That is to say, you know the recommendations even if you, like 75% of Australians, don't actually meet them. But what if you're in a higher risk group? Say you have genes in your family that make you more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. Does that change the amount of physical activity you should be doing? Well, at the moment, there are no official guidelines, but new research suggests that maybe there should be. Here to talk about the study is one of its authors, Melody Ding. Hi, Melody. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for having me. How did you come to be studying exercise and diabetes risk personally? Uh, it's a really interesting um, example of my professional interest and my personal interest collided because um, I come from a family with quite a high genetic risk um, for type 2 diabetes. My dad was recently diagnosed in his 60s and he had several siblings and cousins with type 2 diabetes as well. So as a very active person myself, I've been wondering has the physical activity I've been doing protecting me against type 2 diabetes um, considering my genetic risk. And I wonder if as you a had to declare that. Did you have to declare that as a <laughs> conflict? 
<laughs> that is a really good point. I probably should have. Um, and, and professionally, I, I know that um, currently most of the evidence on type 2 diabetes prevention and physical activity come from self-reported physical activity. And we know that they tend to be biases. And we know that there are questions that are unanswered such as what is the role that light intensity physical activity plays because that's not something that we can report very accurately on. So because of the two reasons, we um, went on the journey to, to find answers. So you've looked at the joint factors of genetics, which you've talked about and from your own experience as well, and physical activity, you said uh, self-reported stuff isn't that um, reliable. You've used accelerometer data, so you've got some pretty robust statistics. What did you find? It's a really interesting um, study from the UK Bio Bank. So we have about more than 60,000, around 60,000 participants with genetic data and accelerometry. And what we found was that there was a very strong protective relationship between physical activity and type 2 diabetes risk. And it's particularly pronounced with the um, moderate to vigorous intensity physical activity. So that's the activity that gets you to sweat and and out of breath, and we find a much weaker association with light intensity physical activity. So when we account for all other risk factors and the demographics and the genetics, what we found was that the participants in the top 10 percentile of physical activity level quantified by moderate vigorous intensity activity, they have about a quarter of the risk compared with those in the bottom 10 percentile. Right. So can you talk to me about the sort of bang for buck that you're getting? Because there's people with high genetic risk, there's people who are highly active, and then obviously the other end of the spectrum. What kind of outcomes are you getting when you're, when you're moving people, even with high genetic risk, into a very active uh, sort of mode? Yeah. So what we found was that the protective effects of moderate to vigorous physical activity seems to hold across different um, gen- genetic predispositions. So it's equally protective among the high and the low risk in terms of the genetics. And very interestingly, what we found was that those with the high genetic risk and high level of physical activity seems to have actually lower risk to develop type 2 diabetes compared with those with low genetic risk and low level of physical activity. So we think that's a really positive um, piece of information, especially to those coming from a family background like mine with high genetic risk. And uh, it really seems to show that if we um, continue to be active, particularly at the moderate vigorous intensity level, we can fight off quite a large proportion of the risk associated with type 2 diabetes. And you didn't seem to find a limit in terms of the benefit that you got from physical activity. Yes. Yes, that's a very interesting finding because previous very limited research based on self-reported physical activity seems to have a threshold effect. And what we found was a dose-response linear association without any minimum or maximum threshold. So what that means is that at any level, we could get benefits. So there doesn't need to be a minimum threshold, but the more we do, the more benefits we get. And we haven't really found a diminishing point from the sample. Of course, this finding needs to be replicated by future studies uh, using accelerometer measure and comparable genetic risk measures. But preliminarily based on this study, what we suggest is if you can be active, sorry, let me say that again, if you can be active and if you can be more active, be more active. 
Good advice. So what sort of policy implications would you hope to see coming out of your research? Diabetes is a huge um, Diabetes is a huge chronic disease issue around the world and it's a very costly disease in Australia. So at the moment, diabetes is costing our healthcare system, our society and our economy a huge amount of money. And I think more emphasis should be focusing on preventing diabetes, especially from modifiable lifestyle behaviors such as diet and physical activity. I, I generally have an impression that there has been a bit more conversation about dietary um, interventions in terms of preventing type 2 diabetes. And I think physical activity needs to be out there as well as a whole package of a holistic lifestyle that help us prevent type 2 diabetes. And I think in a general sense, even beyond type 2 diabetes, doing more physical activity really doesn't seem to do more harms. It's good for our cardiovascular system. It's good for preventing cancers and mental health conditions. So I think there's really multiplicative reasons that we should have to promote physical activity, regardless of type 2 diabetes, and particularly for those with high risk of type 2 diabetes. For people, individuals listening to this going, okay, I'll do more physical activity, a simple message for them? Simple message for them is if you have any opportunities, move more. And uh, if you can, move more vigorously. <laughs> Words to live by. Uh, thank you so much, Melody. Thank you for having me. Associate Professor Melody Ding is an epidemiologist and population behavioural scientist in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. A really disturbing review of what's known about peripheral artery disease in women finds it to be underdiagnosed, undertreated, and to show itself when it's already severe and more likely to end up in a leg amputation. Most of the time on the health report, we talk about cardiovascular disease, which is arterial disease in the heart, neck, and brain, mainly atherosclerosis due to high blood fat levels or high risk conditions compounding the atherosclerosis, and these are conditions like diabetes and kidney damage. Peripheral artery disease, as I said, is also usually due to arthrosclerosis, but mainly in the legs and pelvis. And the shortage of blood to the legs, both when you exercise and at rest, can be so critical that if it's found too late, results in amputation being the only viable treatment. And the review suggests that's what's happening more commonly in women than men. The lead author of the review was Associate Professor Mary Kaverma, who is group leader of the Vascular Complications Group at the Heart Research Institute in Sydney. Welcome to the Health Report. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, you can do a much better job than me of defining peripheral artery <laughs> disease. Did I get it right? What's my, what's my marks out of 10? It's, it's pretty good. Um, it's the build-up of plaque in your arteries that block the supply of blood to your legs and sometimes also the arms, and if left untreated, it can result in limb pain, ulceration, wounds that don't heal, as well as gangrene. We know that severe PAD can lead to limb amputation, and alarmingly, a limb is amputated every two hours in Australia, Gosh. which is quite, quite alarming. It is quite alarming. Now, when I was in medical school, we were taught the classic symptom was you're walking along the flat or up a hill and you get pain in your calf. It's, and then you stop and it goes away. It's called intermittent claudication, the hallmark of peripheral artery disease. And then when you feel for the pulse in the foot, it's not there or it's weak. Um, but what you found is that that's not as common in women as in men. And if that's what yes. you're looking for, you get misled. 
Yeah, that's correct. I mean, that blood pressure monitoring that you mentioned, the ankle brachial index ratio, it's quite a crude way of diagnosing patients with PAD and it doesn't refer to the symptoms that they might be having. And we know that at the moment there are three possible stages of peripheral artery disease, so asymptomatic or atypical, and this is when patients can have pain or discomfort while walking or rest, but the pain is generally minor and it doesn't limit the person's physical activity, which is why it can be easily misdiagnosed. And so intermittent claudication occurs in about 30% of patients which display these features. And as you mentioned, it's exertional leg pain, which is generally relieved by rest. But in a similar way to the way cardiac symptoms in women don't present the same way as in men. I think what you're finding is that they don't, peripheral artery disease doesn't present the same way in women. That's exactly correct. And we find that peripheral artery disease, it's almost like we're a little bit behind uh, in our understanding of this disease, particularly in women. We now know that women present very, very differently when it comes to coronary heart disease. Instead of having the arm ache on the left-hand side, they might have an ache in their neck or shoulder. With peripheral artery disease in women, they tend to not pay attention to the aches and pains in their limbs because generally women tend to be very busy being busy. I noticed in your papers that when it is missed like this, when women first turn up, their very first presentation is when they're so badly off that amputation becomes likely. Yeah, exactly. The most typical presentation is when they present with chronic limb-threatening ischemia, which is when it is at this more severe stage where amputation could be likely. And whilst it's less common in women premenopausal, it, it sort of equalises with men as women get older, maybe showing itself a few years later. What's the typical pattern then in women, for women listening to us? I guess what we're trying to say is that we don't understand the disease. We don't understand if women's disease is different to men's, particularly pre-menopause. And what we're now trying to do is actually understand the biology behind this. So some of the questions that I'm asking for are, why do women present with atypical symptoms? Is the disease different between men and women? Are we missing something? And how can we, I guess, find new ways of treating the disease between men and women? But in order to do this, we need to understand the underlying biology. So what are the treatments? So current treatments are essentially um, lifestyle medications that you would have if you were, had atherosclerosis around the heart. So, so you reduce your cholesterol. Exactly. Um, antidiabetics, um, uh, antiplatelets, for example. There is no specific treatment for the disease itself. Um, what the other treatments are... Uh, but essentially surgical procedures, endovascular surgery. To open up the artery or, or create bypasses. Yeah, you can get a bypass in the leg and that sort of that's thing. That's correct. And the way of diagnosing it? So the way uh, it is diagnosed is through measuring the ankle brachial index ratio, which you described earlier. So this is the difference the, in blood pressure between the leg and the arm, crudely. The leg and the ankle usually, Yes. There are fairly straightforward ways of diagnosing it. So let's just bring this together now. Um, if you're a woman listening to this and you're 
you know, postmenopausal, but any, it doesn't matter what age, what should you be looking for and what should you be talking to your GP about? Yeah, definitely pay attention to the aches and pains in your calves when walking or at rest. Ask your GP about PAD. I mean, like I mentioned before, women tend to keep going and attribute their sore legs to having a busy life lifestyle. They really need to stop and listen to their bodies. And get your risk factors down. Get some exercise. <laughs> keep your Absolutely. cholesterol down. All of those things. Healthy diet, exercise, all of those things. And we should say about type 2 diabetes, it's much more important that you get your coronary risk factors down than control of the diabetes, important though that is. It's all incredibly important. So um, definitely go and speak to your GP. Mary, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Associate Professor Mary Kaverma is group leader of the Vascular Complications Group at the Heart Research Institute in Sydney. And that's the program for this week. Indeed it is. But join us again next week because we'll be back then. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.